Well, guys, we are going to be finishing up the Olivet Discourse. This is Matthew 24 and 25. So go ahead and be turning to Matthew 25, because we are at the very end of it. We're going to be starting in verse 31. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Has anyone here, like, been really, really invested in a book or a TV show just for the author to die before the series is done? Or for the TV show to get canceled? Yeah, did you just for that happens? Yes, it happens. It happens a lot, unfortunately. Uh, one of the most famous ones being Charles Dickens. He was writing a murder mystery, and he died around chapter 11. Who, who did it? No one knows. We think it was the butler, but uh, it's, it, it's, un, it's unsure. Uh, Isaac Asimov, he was another guy who was writing a series called The Foundation Series. It has no ending. We'll never know how that was supposed to turn out. And it, it gets frustrating, right? You're in, invested in these characters, and then you never get to find out how the story ends. And yeah, sometimes you have a close friend who they wrote notes to, or you have a family member who was able to collect his stuff, and they quote-unquote finish it. But it's not right. You, you read the book, and you go, this, this, isn't, this isn't his writing style. This isn't where he would have gone. And it never, it never feels quite right. Well, as we come to the end of Matthew 25, we're going to see that, thankfully, Jesus does not leave the story that he's been telling his disciples unfinished. Remember that for the past two months now, we have been going over a time of uninterrupted, long-form teaching that Jesus is giving his disciples, that we call a discourse. Uh, it begins in Matthew 25. And who remembers what prompted this session of teaching that he's giving his disciples? The disciples asked Jesus something in Matthew 24, verse 3. What was it? If you're unsure, you can look down in your Bible. Because we're all bringing our Bibles, right? Everyone here, we're a Bible church. This is something you should bring each week. Yeah. When is the end of the world? When is the end of the world? That was the question the disciples had. They've been talking about how wonderful the temple was. And Jesus told them, well, not one of these stones is going to be left on each other. And that got them thinking, okay, when is this going to happen? When is your kingdom being established? And if you recall, the disciples, they thought this was going to be like a thousand years later, right? Disciples think that? What? No, come on. I, I know it's early, guys, but we got to do a little participation here. Say it proud. Did the disciples think that? No, no there we go. Okay, no, they didn't. They thought this was going to happen like immediately. They thought that Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom. And so they ask him, when, when is this going to happen? Yes, you've been saying you're coming to Jerusalem to die. That's great. But when is your kingdom coming, Lord? And Jesus, he first answers their immediate question. Uh, the question of what are the signs of my coming kingdom? These are the signs. He tells them that there's going to be wars and plagues and famine, that people's love for each other is going to grow cold and there's going to be a time of great tribulation like the world has never seen before or ever will see again. That after all these, these things are done, then and only then will the Son of Man appear with power and great glory. And Jesus stops there for just a second. He says, yes, I appear in the clouds with my angels. I have all this glory, all this power. Let's stop there for just a second, everyone. And I'm going to give you three parables. And so he gives them these three parables because he really wants them to understand that no one knows the time of his return except for the Father. And because no one knows it, we are to be on the alert. He gives us these three parables about how a servant is in submission to someone greater than them. Uh, we get the parable of uh, the bridesmaids, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the wicked servant that he goes over. 
And can you imagine if that's where the discussion ended? Jesus reveals that he would one day come in great power and glory, and that we're to be on the alert for the coming of the master, and then the end. I'd feel a little like, wait, hold on, hold on. You said something about your coming, and you stopped. Like, what, what happens next? What's the end of the story? And don't get me wrong, it is an incredibly important message for everyone here this morning that as a believer, the knowledge that Jesus, your God and your King, will return at a moment when you're not expecting, that should prompt you to do certain things. This is important. It should absolutely drive you to live out your life such that he finds you faithfully doing the tasks that he set before you. As an unbeliever, it should absolutely drive you to the cross, confessing that you, like everyone else here this morning, is a sinner, that you were at one point that wicked servant who was beating his other servants that Jesus describes in Matthew 24. It should drive you to be like the tax collector that we see in Luke 18, 13, crying out, not willing to look his eyes up to heaven, but beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because we know that if we confess our sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all that's true. But if that's where the message stopped, I'd, I'd really be left wondering, so, so what happens after you appear? What's the next thing? And Jesus' description of his coming uh, kingdom stopped at Matthew 24, 31 with the nations of the world mourning at his appearing and the angels gathering up the elect. I'd want to know what happens next. It'd be like ending the Lord of the Rings after they crown Aragorn king. It'd be like ending Pride and Prejudice after Jane marries Mr. Bingley. And it's like, yeah, that's great. That's great. But I really, I'm more interested in Elizabeth. What happens with her and Darcy? I want to know that. And hey, I'm glad Aragorn's keen, but you know, back in the first book of the Fellowship of the Ring, there's this vision Sam had about the Shire being torn up. What, what happened with that? Like, what's, what's the point? Well, thankfully, Jesus now picks up where he left off to complete this story. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning. This is Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to read verses 31 all the way through 46. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one, or from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When you did, or when did we... I'm sorry, the, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I titled this morning's lesson, Before the Throne of God. And our theme is going to be Jesus, as king, judges the nations in righteousness with eternal consequences. Jesus, as king, judges the nations in righteousness with eternal consequences. We're going to be breaking this passage into three sections. I'm going to do a little wonky. I'm, I'll be honest here. Uh, first, we're going to look at the foundation of this. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. It's verses 31 to 33. Then we're going to look at the charge and the response, the sheep and the goats. And we're going to do that in verses 35 through 39 and verses 42 through 45. So we're going to jump around a little bit, but I think you guys can handle it. And finally, we're going to look at the eternal application that's in verses 34, 41, and 46. And yeah, I know it's a bit of an unusual split, but just the way this passage is formatted and the way it mirrors itself so much, we're going to kind of group the mirrorings together and talk about them at the same time. So let's start with the foundation for this section. As I was reading about this from different commentators, it really surprised me how much of a split there is on this passage. Like, not just from commentators that I would expect to be kind of out in left field doing crazy things. As you search the internet, you find weird people and saying weird things. But even pastors that I, I love and respect, uh, they all had very wildly differing opinions on this. Things like, uh, who are the people involved in it? Um, is this even supposed to be taken literally, or, or is this just one final parable that Jesus is giving his disciples. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time kind of answering these foundational questions. Who are we talking about? Is this literal? Is this a parable? What's going on? And I want to start with that one first. Is this literal or or is this a parable? Who here remembers what is a parable? William, I saw your hand for just a second. Be brave and courageous. What's a parable? Yeah, that's a great definition. That, that, that's an expanded definition. It is, uh, William's saying it was a story designed to teach a spiritual concept whose purpose was both to let those who are in Christ understand it and those who aren't in Christ not understand it. And we talked about this uh, a long time ago, how Jesus did this as a form of love because he didn't want those who are going to hell to be even more condemned because those who hear the truth and fail to do it, God holds them accountable for the fact they do not respond to the truth of the gospel. And so in his mercy, he spoke to them in parables. Uh, now, I was going to go with the condensed version. Uh, <laughs> so we're, I'm impressed you remember that. Every, round of applause for William. Good job remembering that. It's been a long time since we talked about all that. Uh, but I, I was going to just use the condensed uh, explanation. That's just that it, it uses something common, something we see in the world around us every day, to explain a greater spiritual concept. When Jesus uses parables, he always uses the same kind of phraseology, the same kind of words to introduce it. He says something like, um, you know, what do you think? Or, uh, for it is like, or 
the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So we all have these kind of introductory phrases to get us to think about something greater. I mean, sometimes he just lays out flat. He says, hey, listen to this parable, and then he tells him a parable. Uh, But in all these cases, Jesus used these kind of phrases to indicate that he's going to present them a parable that's supposed to get the listener thinking beyond the surface level of what Jesus is saying. Like, he's not really saying there's a guy who has two sons, and one of them is obedient and one is disobedient. He's not really just talking about some bridesmaids, half of whom were kind of stupid and half were prudent. There is a greater meaning beyond the surface level. And we're intended to think about that, how we are represented in the parable, and how we should be responding to God in his kingdom. In contrast, consider how this section begins. Jesus says, not for what it is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, but simply, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Now, if anyone was here on Wednesday night, you might remember uh, Mr. Scarborough, he talked about the word but. And that's how this section starts off, but when. Uh, And he talked about it's important to spell it right. And he talked about that it's important to understand that it's a conjunction. I know we're in summer, everyone's like, no. Matthew, please, not this again. It was bad enough, Ben went over it, but now you're bringing it up. Yeah, I know. We're talking about parts of speech. It's a conjunction. The idea is that it it joins together two thoughts together. These are related ideas, related concepts, and we're joining them together. Uh, And this specific conjunction is being used to create a transition from what we've just been talking about, the parables about how we're to be on the alert, and we're joining it together into where he is going now. The phrase, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, is showing that we are done with the parables and picking back up with the prophetic revelation that he was giving the disciples way back in Matthew 24, 31. In fact, it's entirely possible if you wanted to, you'd be missing out on a lot of good stuff, but if you wanted to, you could read the entirety of Jesus' revealed prophetic uh, discussion to the disciples by reading Matthew 24, uh, starting in uh, verses 1 and reading through 31, and then you skip all the way over to Matthew 25, 31, and you would get this unbroken narrative of Jesus coming in his glory and then immediately beginning his judgment. And just to give you an idea for what that would be like, uh, reading from Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, "And, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth were mourned, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. You can see how this is one continuous idea. And we're picking up exactly where we left off with the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him. So rather than trying to look at this section as some sort of parable, uh, we need to be taking it literally. Like the language describes it as literal, and just based on the flow of the narrative, you can see how it combines into one complete unbroken narrative. This is a literal passage. Uh, But why does does this matter? I mean, could I have just said, uh, is this a parable or is this literal? It's literal, let's move on. Could I have said that? Yeah, I, I, could have, I could have said that. Uh, but the reason I've kind of gone over this so much is it's really important. If this is just a parable, if this section is all parable is, as there are many pastors who do argue, then there, the section at the very end where he talks about there being eternal punishment and eternal wor- rewards would all be figurative. 
and not to be taken literally. It is vital that we understand that this section is literal so that we can understand there is a literal judgment with literal consequences and respond appropriately. But that's something to talk about later on. Uh, We'll get there. Uh, Having established that this is a literal passage, based both on the language and its direct continuation, uh, let's talk about when this takes place. In verses 31 31 and 32, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, when we talk about Jesus sitting on his glorious throne and judging, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Does anyone have a specific event that comes to your mind when you hear about Jesus sitting on his throne and judging? Nothing? Something? The last judgment. Last judgment. We have a fancy term for it. Does anyone know what that is? Something about a great white something? Great white throne. You know, Ian, I really appreciate you walking with me through this because you're wrong. Uh, This is not the great white throne judgment. I appreciate you being the straight man for my setup here. Uh, It's what I thought of too, for the record. Like as I was going through this passage, I'm like, oh, okay, obviously this is the great white throne judgment. And as I was reading more about it, uh, I too came to the realization that, oh, you know what? I'm wrong. This is not the great white throne uh, judgment. Instead, uh, this is taking place immediately after Jesus arrives and is setting up his millennial kingdom. The great white throne judgment, it happens after the millennial kingdom. Instead, what we see happening here is that uh, there is a passage in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, and this is the judgment we're talking about. It is a first judgment before the great white throne judgment. In Revelation 20, this passage takes place immediately after God finishes his judgment on the earth in the Great Tribulation. The seals are all broken, the trumpets have all sounded, the lightnings have all peeled, the bowls have all been poured out, Jesus comes, everything's done. And then immediately after this, we see a judgment uh, of God. In Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, you might be hearing that and thinking, Matthew, that doesn't really sound at all like what you just described in Matthew 25. Is there anyone who kind of feels that way? You can, it's okay to say yes. It's okay to be asleep too. No, wait, it's not okay to be asleep. Wake up, guys. Does anyone feel that way? Yes or no? Yeah, maybe. I, yes, I, I read that and go, wait, this really, it really doesn't sound very similar. How, how can I be sure that uh, what we're talking about in Matthew 25 is talking about what we just read in Revelation 20? They're talking about different things. We have Jesus on his throne in Matthew 25, and in Revelation 20, verse 4, we're talking about several thrones. Uh, In Matthew 25, we're talking about all the nations. In Revelation 20, verse 4, we're talking about those who are beheaded for not uh, following after the beast. Like, how, how are these two things related? Well, the answer is I can be pretty sure that they're still related. Well, it is certainly possible that in Matthew 25, Jesus is skipping over some stuff. Maybe 
maybe we're just skipping over this first judgment and going straight to the great white throne judgment. However, based on how both of these passages talk about a judgment that occurs immediately following the completion of the tribulation, I think it's safe to say that we're looking at the same judgment that Matthew 25 and Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6, these are comparative judgments. You may remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, this whole passage and we compared it about how it, it compares to Revelation. Um, it, was, it was the last time I talked. And we talked about how Revelation takes it from a heavenly perspective. The whole focus of Revelation is God reveals this to John, is here's what's going on before the throne of God. And so here, when we look at Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6, we're looking at the heavenly perspective of this judgment. It is a time of rejoicing that God is reigning supreme and God is rewarding those who are faithful to him. However, in Matthew, the point of this patch is that God is telling his disciples what's going to happen from an earthly perspective. And so in Matthew, we're looking at the exact same judgment, except we're looking at how it affects those who lived through the tribulation on earth and are now being affected by that judgment. Well, there's just one last thing I want us to consider in our foundation for this passage, and then I promise we're going to pick up the pace a bit, and that's who are the goats and who are the sheep. And since we've done so much foundation work already, this is really easy to answer. Uh, We know that this is a literal description of a literal judgment to come. We know that this takes place immediately after the tribulation. And we know that this is a continuation of the revelation Jesus has been giving over the past two chapters. Like, this isn't a passage all by itself that we have to look at in isolation. This is part of a larger discourse. And that means that all the parables that Jesus gave prior to it, they were funneling to this passage. He was giving this aside about, hey, be on the alert because of what's coming here. There is a coming judgment. That means that the way Jesus divides people into goats and sheep is the same division that God has been making in the three parables. The same division God made with the five foolish bridesmaids and the five wise bridesmaids. The same division God made between those who used his talents that he gave them wisely and the wicked slave who hid it in the ground and then tried to blame God for hiding it in the ground in the first place. It's the exact same division. This is the division between the believer and the unbeliever. Jesus is dividing the nations into those who are his faithful servants, the sheep, and those who rejected him, the goats. And understand, when Jesus says the nations, uh, they're they're the beginning of our passage. He says he sends his angels and they gather the nations. And Jesus separates the nations uh, from one another. The point isn't that Jesus is going to universally judge a nation. The point is that uh, he's displaying the universal nature of the judgment being carried out on every individual still alive at this point. Like no one who's alive at the end of the tribulation is going to be excluded from this judgment. Everyone is going to be there who is still alive. Uh, Sorry, I believe I lost my spot. Oh, (laughs) sorry, I I had a much longer section. I had to cut it out. That's why I'm so confused. I'm like, what on earth? We had to cut it out for time. Uh, So understand that this this is a everyone who's alive. Uh, we're, We're not actually trying to say that every nation is going to be judged together. 
uh, but that everyone who is alive is going to be judged. Uh, so with the foundation laid, let's look at our common charges that Jesus brings against both the sheep and the goats. For the sheep, he says, come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And why does he tell them to come and inherit? In verses 35, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the sheep respond by asking, Lord, when did we do any of these things? I, I don't recall doing any of these things to you. So why are you saying that I did? In Jesus' response, he gives a summary statement to the sheep in verse 40. He says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Likewise, for the goats, he tells them to depart from him into the eternal fire. And why? Because in verse 42, he says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to drink. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And the goats respond in the same way as the sheep saying, hey, when did I do any of this stuff to you, Christ? I don't remember seeing you personally. I don't remember seeing you hungry. I don't remember seeing you thirsty. I don't remember seeing you in jail, Jesus. And Jesus gives a summary statement just like he did the sheep. In verse 45, he says, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Notice that the charges are the same. It's just that the sheep, they did all the things positively, while the goats did all these things negatively. The sheep did give water. They did give food. Well, the goats did not give water. They did not give food. And ultimately, Christ says that to the extent anyone did something good or bad to one of the least of these brothers of his, it's as if they were doing it to Christ himself. So there's two questions we need to answer from this statement. First of all, who is Jesus' brothers? Who, who are these least of these that Jesus is talking about? Who is it? Actual question here. Jesus says, whoever does not one of these brothers, one of these least of these. What do you think? Ian, you've, you've answered a couple times. Other Christians, yeah. Uh, it, it's his believers. Easy, easy Sunday school answer here. <laughs> Who are the brothers of Christ? It's the believers. Uh, in Matthew 12, 48 through 50, when Jesus' brothers, remember they bring his mom because they think if they use the mom as a bargaining chip, they can drag him away from the crowds because they think he's insane and they want to get him away from everyone. Uh, and they send someone in and someone says, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. Jesus' response to them is, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, forever does the will of the Father who is in heaven. He is my brother and sister and mother. And likewise, in Acts 9, we're told that Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But when Christ stops him onto the road to Damascus, what does he say to him? He remembers the first thing Christ says to Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus. Yeah. Why are you persecuting? Yeah, he says, why are you persecuting not my followers, not those who believe in me. He says, why are you persecuting me? So the distinction Jesus is making between the sheep, those who enter his kingdom, and the goats are, are how have they treated other believers. And now since we know that this is a literal passage talking about a literal judgment, does this mean that people will literally get into the millennial kingdom or literally go to hell because of how they treat believers? Is God at this point teaching a works-based salvation? 
This is a new one. You can say it proudly and loudly. No. That, that wasn't loud or proud, but I will take it. <laughs> Thank you, Lane. Uh, no. No, let's not ignore the rest of scriptures as we come to this passage. The things that Jesus is praising or condemning the people for are all things that the Bible has instructed that we as believers should already be doing. And I, I'm going to give you a rapid-fire list here. So you can just make a note as I read these off. You can look more into them later, but Isaiah 58.10, it says, If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. Proverbs 22.9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. Luke 3.11, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. I didn't write this down, but in James 1, I believe it's 9, it talks about for pure, or James 1.24, for pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit... Uh, widows and orphans in their time of distress. I, I think I'm getting the ending messed up. I didn't write it down, but that's another one you can turn to. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, it says, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have enter entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body." Jesus isn't giving a list of good deeds to determine our eternal state. He's giving us a list that anyone who is a follower of his will be doing as a result of their new nature in Christ. In fact, 1 John 3, 13, 14, it says this plainly. It says, Do not be surprised, brethren, the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So the issue isn't whether or not you're doing the things. The issue is whether or not Christ's love is in you, and if Christ's love is in you, then you excuse me, if, Christ, if Christ's love is in you, then you will be doing the things he mentioned. So why do you think Jesus gave a list of things instead of just saying, the sheep are my believers, they enter into my kingdom, the goats are unbelievers, they go to hell? Why, why would he do this? I think one of the reasons is having just finished the parable of the talents Jesus is taking the opportunity to provide concrete examples of what kind of things he considers to be wisely using the money that he gave you, the talents he gave you. You want to know how you can invest those talents? Here's some quick things. Jesus is giving you some, some practical examples. You can look out for other believers. Give them water when they're thirsty. Give them food when they're hungry. Someone's getting hard times. So they're not able to get this stuff themselves. You're looking out for them. You're caring for them. I know that y'all guys are at an age where your ability to minister to the saints, it might seem somewhat limited, right? I mean, uh, it, it's hard at this age to go and be in charge of a, of a ministry somewhere. That's not really the responsibility that the church leadership is going to give y'all, right? No, no one is going to be like, hey, you know what? I want to head up a five-day club. And they're going to go, that is great. You need to find an adult who will help you with that. Uh, no one is going to say, I want to start a prison ministry. Yeah, you know, it says go, to, go visit the, the brothers and sisters in chains. I want to go do that. Dustin's going to go, that is great. Maybe you can do it with Ernie Black at Countryside. Uh, you are not allowed to go into a prison by yourself. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, seem, it might seem hard at this age to find those ministry opportunities, but Jesus is saying that everyone in here right now, you have the ability to wisely manage what God has entrusted to you if you, as a believer, simply care for those around you. Because when you care and minister 
to other believers, when you uplift them, Jesus is saying it's as if you're caring for and you're uplifting Christ himself. And that's going to bring us to our third and final section of this passage, the eternal application. First, we see in verse 34, Jesus will one day tell his sheep who survived through the tribulation, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There are so many wonderful, profound truths in this one simple statement. And I can only give you the quick highlights. We don't have time to, to dig into them all. But understand how the sheep don't act on their own. The sheep don't just say, I'm a sheep now, I'm going to walk into the kingdom. No, Jesus says, come. It still has to be a command from him. Notice also how Jesus describes the believers as being blessed by God the Father. We're not just, we're not just chosen by him. We are blessed by him. And how are we blessed by God? Well, Ephesians 1, 3 answers this nicely. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We're blessed by God because he's giving us not just some spiritual blessings. He's giving us every spiritual blessing, every good thing that is coming your way through the scripture was given to you by God. It's not something that you wrestled from him. It's not something that you had to go out and get for yourself. God did it all for you. In fact, the Bible, another spot, it says that God prepared these things for you beforehand. So it's not just that you became a believer and these opportunities came up. No, God specifically prepared them for you so that you could minister. And ultimately, it's not just that we get these spiritual blessings, it's that we have been given the greatest spiritual blessing, which is salvation in Christ his Son. And that's a thought that should truly humble us. Knowing everything I do, God still chose to give me his gift of salvation. To make me not just a bondservant of his, a slave at the lowest tier. But he made me an equal heir with Christ, a fellow heir. How insane is that? And then he prepared a marvelous kingdom. So I'm not just living in a stable in his kingdom. He prepared a marvelous place for us to live. It's not something I deserve, and yet despite what I do deserve— the punishment that my sins require, God was pleased to take all my filthy sins and the guilt of it and place it on Jesus. And then he was pleased to take the perfectness of Jesus and place it on me. That's a thought that should just floor us every day. Conversely, in verse 41, Jesus tells the goats, not come, but depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's another very theologically packed sentence. But this isn't a joyful one. It's a somber warning, warning for anyone who has yet to confess Christ as their Lord. Instead of being blessed, Jesus describes the goats as accursed. Uh, this is what Romans 9.22 is talking about when it just describes how there are clay vessels of wrath that God has prepared for destruction. And this is the beautiful and for many tragic end of the story. The end wasn't just that God judges the world in a great tribulation and he comes, the end. 
No. The end of the story is found here in verse 46 where he gives one final warning and promise. For those who reject Christ, there is an eternal punishment coming. And we live in a time where we don't even like to talk about hell, right? Like, you go to most churches, and they say, well, we don't like talking about hell, because when you start talking about hell, people don't like it. Of course, of course people don't like it when you talk about hell. People don't like it when you tell them they're sinners. The natural state of man is in rebellion against God. Of course they don't like it. But we're supposed to tell them about it because it is an eternal place with eternal consequences. And when we do talk about hell, we certainly don't like talking about the fact that it's forever. People will say, oh, it's just, you know, when we say eternal punishment, we mean the soul is destroyed forever. Or when we say eternal punishment, we're just talking about, it actually means an age. Because this word, it can also kind of means an age of punishment. And so God's love wins out in the end. And all these people, uh, after serving their, their time in a correctional facility, they get to come into heaven as well. But as Jesus wraps up his discourse, he warns that the greatest reason we are to be on the alert for his coming kingdom is that he will one day decree against those who rebelled against him that they face an eternal, never-ending punishment. It's a place that both Matthew 24, 51 and 25, 30 describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I'm not sure are, how many people are familiar with the phrase gnashing of teeth. Some people, some people know. Okay. How many people have been so angry at a parent or a teacher that you know you can't mouth off to them? <laughs> you're already in trouble. You're angry, but you're not dumb. You know you can't mouth off to this person, but you're so furious that your whole body tenses up and your face gets mad and your jaw clenches and you are just seething in anger. Anyone been here? Just me? I know, okay, look, I know most people in here probably had a moment, maybe in their childhood, maybe it's been a while, but we've all had that moment where we are just so angry that our whole body clenches up and our teeth seize up. And this is what we're talking about, gnashing of teeth. It's when you're grinding your molars together because you're just so blindingly angry. Hell must be an eternal punishment in part because the people who go there never repent. They spend all of eternity in active rebellion against God, in anger against him, gnashing their teeth. And, and we see this response to God in, in Matthew 25. They had just heard the reason why the sheep were told, come into my rest. Jesus had just told them, hey, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And then he turns to the goats and he says the same thing. And they said, well, I don't know what I did that. I never, I'm basically a good person. I never treated you this way, Lord. They know that he's going to turn around and say, whenever you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And yet they still try to reject God and his authority. They still try to argue they are actually good people who don't deserve this. And they will continue to refuse to repent for all eternity as they seethe in their anger under the righteous punishment of God. But thankfully, it's not all bad news as we end this story. And I say story, this is just me being literative. We understand that this is real. I'm just using the example from the beginning. Okay, guys? Uh, as we end this story, it's not all bad news. For those who are a follower of Christ, he gives them the promise that we will have eternal life. 
And guys, this is the exact same word that he used for eternal punishment. Understand that these two concepts are linked. Eternal punishment and eternal life. You can't argue that God's punishment is short-lived, but his promise of eternal life is forever. If God's eternal punishment ends someday, then understand that his eternal life promise would also have to end someday. If God's eternal life promises forever, then understand also that the promise of eternal punishment must be forever. You can't have one without the other. Daniel's 12, Daniel 12, 22, bleh, Daniel 12, 2, there's one too many twos in there, sorry everyone, it reiterates this. Uh, he's talking about the second resurrection at the great white throne judgment and says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Again, it's the same word, eternal life or everlasting life, everlasting shame and contempt. Same word. You may not like it, but that's kind of the point of Matthew, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Jesus is king. He is the one in charge, and one day all the world will submit to him. Now, some of us, we're going to submit because of our great love and devotion to him. It's going to be our joy to submit to him. Other people, however, they will submit to him even while they are rebelling against him because they will undeniably recognize Jesus as king on his throne. They're going to mourn. I mean, we we read about this earlier, how the nations mourn that they can no longer indulge in the lust of their flesh. Not earlier today, earlier a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Revelation. The, the The nations mourn that they don't get a sin anymore. But even while they're mourning, they submit to Christ because they say, this is the king. So how should we apply this to our lives today? Well, first and foremost, you need to be examining your heart and figure out if you're a sheep or a goat. Like this, this is where everything starts, guys. Until you come to a place where you can absolutely and definitively say, yes, I am a child of God. And it's not because I come to church each week. It's not because I tithe. It's not because I do good things. It's not because Nika was thirsty the other day and I gave him a bottle of water. <laughs> I'm not a real example. I'm just using you. <laughs> These aren't the reasons that we're going to be justified before God. The only reason we're going to be justified is because we're going to say, I have placed my faith solely and completely in Jesus because there is no other name under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus or nothing. This is what my salvation stands on. Are you a follower of Christ, or are you living for yourself? That's where you got to start. Second, I want you to be considering carefully how you are treating other believers. Are you forming cliques here, guys? Are you making sure there's this one guy, this one gal that y'all don't like? And your little group, y'all get, y'all get together, and y'all make sure that you're always just a little further away from them than they're trying to get to. You make sure you're always doing that one activity that they're not really a fan of. You're making sure that your group is structured such that they are slightly positioned out of it. Or are you stirring up drama because everyone is jealous that everyone else is in love with the wrong person? 
You know, Johnny likes Susie, Susie likes Tommy, and Sally over there is upset because she likes Johnny and is annoyed that Susie isn't responding the way she would be responding. Like, it's, it's insane the level of annoyance we get to because people do or don't like someone else. How are you treating your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you treating them with love? Or are you treating them with bitterness? When your siblings come to you for help, are you helping them? Because guys, Jesus tells you that the way you're treating other believers is the way you're treating him. How are you treating Christ? If you truly love Christ, that should get you into rethinking how you're treating him by getting you to rethink how you're treating your fellow believers and rethinking it fast. Let's go ahead and, and pray, everyone. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your revealed word. Lord, I do pray that we would be carefully considering, are we sheep or are we goats? Are we one of yours or are we lost in our sins? And Lord, I pray that if we were one of yours, we'd be carefully considering how we're treating the other believers around us that we would understand that the way we're treating them is a reflection on how we view you. Lord, if we love you, we are going to be loving the brethren around us. Father, we do love you, and we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen.